Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. The telescope conjecture gave mathematicians a handle on ways to map one sphere to another. Now that it's been disproved, the universe of shapes has exploded. That's next. You've learned from Quanta, now we want to learn from you. Quanta is conducting a series of surveys to better serve our audience. Take our podcast listener survey, and you'll be entered to win a free Quanta book, t-shirt, or tote bag. Head to quantamag.typeform.com forward slash podcast to answer our questions, or click the link in the podcast description. In early June of 2023, buzz built as mathematicians landed at London's Heathrow Airport. Their destination was the University of Oxford and a conference in honor of the 65th birthday of Michael Hopkins. He's a mathematician at Harvard University who'd served as a mentor to many of the attendees. Hopkins made a name for himself in the late 1980s for work on seven conjectures that Doug Ravenel of the University of Rochester had formulated a decade earlier. They had to do with techniques for determining when two shapes or spaces that might look different are really the same. Hopkins and his collaborators proved all of Ravenel's conjectures, except for one, the telescope conjecture. At the time, Hopkins laid his work on Ravenel's conjectures to rest. For decades afterward, the telescope conjecture seemed all but impossible to solve. Here's Hopkins. That kind of a theorem was untouchable before this result. You couldn't touch a theorem like that. But as mathematicians landed in London, there were rumors that it had been done by a group of four mathematicians with ties to MIT, three of whom had been advised by Hopkins in graduate school. The youngest of the four was a graduate student named Ishan Levy. He was scheduled to give a talk on the second day of the conference, which seemed to be when a proof might be announced. Vesna Stoyanovska is a mathematician at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, who attended the conference. I had heard rumors that this was coming up, (laughs) and I didn't know exactly what to expect. So I was excited to go there. It was soon clear the rumors were true. Beginning on a Tuesday and over the next three days, Levy and his co-authors, Robert Berkland, Jeremy Hahn, and Tomer Schlank, explained to the crowd of some 200 mathematicians how they'd proved that the telescope conjecture was false. Their work made the telescope conjecture the only one of Ravenel's original conjectures not to be true. Here's Stoyanovska again. One thing that happens at talks, at conferences, is people get really technical and a lot of people tune out or something along those lines. But for this one, it was different. Like <laughs> The whole room, the whole lecture room was kind of attentive and kind of like, wait, is this really happening? <laughs> the disproof of the telescope conjecture has wide-ranging implications. But one of the simplest and most profound is this. It means that in very high dimensions, the universe of different shapes is far more complicated than mathematicians anticipated. Here's study co-author Jeremy Hahn. 
these is a really fundamental thing we're studying that you can come at from many directions. So these stable homotopy groups, I think Wikipedia does a good job of showing just how many different ways of thinking about them there are and how they come up in different contexts. And so one way you can think about them as some sort of measurement of how many ways to map a large sphere continuously into a smaller sphere where the difference in dimensions is somehow measuring the group we're studying. Let's back it up for a minute. To classify shapes or topological spaces, mathematicians distinguish between differences that matter and those that don't. Homotopy theory is a perspective from which to make those distinctions. It considers a ball and an egg to be fundamentally the same topological space, because you can bend and stretch one into the other without ripping either. In the same way, homotopy theory considers a ball and an inner tube to be fundamentally different, because you have to tear a hole in the ball to deform it into the inner tube. Homotopy is useful for classifying topological spaces because it creates a chart of all the kinds of shapes that are possible. It's also important for understanding something else mathematicians care about, maps between spaces. If you have two topological spaces, one way to probe their properties is to look for functions that convert or map points to one to points on the other. Input a point on space A, get a point on space B as your output, and do that for all the points on A. To see how these maps work and why they illuminate properties of the spaces involved, start with a circle. Now map it onto the two-dimensional sphere, which is the surface of a ball. There are infinitely many ways of doing this. If you can imagine the sphere as Earth's surface, you could put your circle at any line of latitude, for example. From the perspective of homotopy theory, they're all equivalent or homotopic because they can all shrink down to a point at the north or south pole. Next, map the circle onto the two-dimensional surface of an inner tube. Again, there are infinitely many ways of doing this, and most are homotopic, but not all of them. You could place a circle horizontally or vertically around the inner tube, and neither can be smoothly deformed into the other. These are two of many ways of mapping a circle onto the inner tube, while there's just one way to map it onto a sphere, reflecting a fundamental difference between the two spaces. The inner tube, or torus, has one hole while the sphere has none. It's easy to count the ways we can map from the circle to the two-dimensional sphere or torus. They're familiar spaces that are easy to visualize, but counting maps is much harder when higher dimensional spaces are involved. If two spheres have the same dimension, there are always infinitely many maps between them. And if the space you're mapping from is lower dimensional than the space you're mapping to, there's always only one map. Partly for that reason, counting maps is most interesting when the space you're mapping from has a higher dimension than the space you're mapping to, like when you map a seven-dimensional sphere onto a three-dimensional sphere. In cases like those, the number of maps is always finite. Hahn says the maps between spheres in general tend to be more interesting when the source has a larger dimension. 
Moreover, the number of maps depends only on the difference in the number of dimensions, at least once the dimensions get big enough compared to the difference. That is, the number of maps from a 73-dimensional sphere to a 53-dimensional sphere is the same as the number of maps from a 225-dimensional sphere to a 205-dimensional sphere, because in both cases, the difference in dimension is 20. Mathematicians would like to know the number of maps between spaces of any difference in dimension. They've managed to compute the number of maps for almost all differences in dimension up to 100. There are 24 maps between spheres when the difference is 20, and 3,144,960 when it's 23. But calculating the number of maps for any difference larger than 100 exhausts modern computing power. And at the same time, mathematicians haven't detected enough patterns in the number of maps to extrapolate further. Their goal is to fill out a table that specifies the number of maps for any difference in dimension, but that goal feels very far off. Ravenel, who's in his mid-70s, says this isn't a question he expects a complete solution to in the lifetime of his grandchildren. The telescope conjecture makes a prediction about how the number of maps grows as the difference in dimension increases. In effect, it predicts that the number grows slowly. If it had been true, it would have made the problem of filling out that table a little bit easier. So why is it called the telescope conjecture? It started from the fact that in very high dimensions, geometric intuition formed in lower dimensions often breaks down, and it's difficult to count maps between spheres. But in formulating his conjecture, Ravenel understood that you don't have to. Instead of counting maps between spheres, you can make an easy proxy count of maps between spheres and objects called telescopes. Telescopes involve a series of copies of a closed, higher-dimensional curve, each one a scaled-down version of the one that came before it. This series of curves resembles the interlocking tubes of an actual collapsible telescope. Ravenel says as bizarre as that sounds, it's actually an easier object to deal with than the sphere itself. But still, Spheres can map onto telescopes in many different ways, and the challenge is knowing when those maps are genuinely distinct. To determine whether two spaces are homotopic requires a mathematical test known as an invariant. It's a calculation based on properties of the spaces. If the calculation yields a different value for each space, you know they're unique from the perspective of homotopy. There are many kinds of invariants, and some can perceive differences that other invariants are blind to. The telescope conjecture predicts that an invariant called Morava E-theory and its symmetries can perfectly distinguish all maps between spheres and telescopes up to homotopy. That is, if Morava E-theory says the maps are distinct, they're distinct, and if it says they're the same, they're the same. But in 1989, Ravenel had begun to doubt it was true. His skepticism emerged from calculations he performed that didn't seem to be consistent with the conjecture. But it wasn't until October of that year when the strong Loma Prieta earthquake struck the San Francisco Bay Area while he was in Berkeley that those doubts turned into full-fledged disbelief. Ravenel says he thinks something happened that made him think it wasn't true. 
Disproving the telescope conjecture would require finding a more powerful invariant that could see things Morava E theory cannot. For decades, no such invariant seemed to be available, placing the conjecture firmly out of reach. But progress in recent years changed that, and Birkeland, Hahn, Levy, and Schlank capitalized on it. Their proof relies on a set of tools called algebraic K-theory, which was established in the 1950s by Alexander Grotendieck and has developed rapidly over the last decade. Here's Schlank. What made this proof possible is that certain tools to study those homotopy groups that are not related to E-theory has in recent years became way stronger. And that's what are called trace methods, for example, from algebraic K-theory. And the fact that those tools became stronger and better understood allows us to use different methods to analyze the situation. It has applications across mathematics, including geometry, where it has the ability to supercharge an invariant. Here's Han again. What we prove a result about is not just the raw number of exotic spheres or the raw number of continuous maps. We prove something a little bit more refined, which is about what's called the rank of these groups. One way you can think about it is there's this either addition of maps, so that if you have two exotic spheres, you can cut a little hole out of each of them and glue them together and get a third exotic sphere. And so you might consider two exotic spheres to be similar or related to each other if you can get from one to the other by doing these kinds of cutting and pasting operations. Maybe you consider those sort of very related exotic spheres. And what we can prove is that even if you allow yourself this kind of cutting and pasting operation, there are still many, many exotic spheres that are just totally different, even from this cutting and pasting point of view as the dimension grows. The four authors, including Hahn, use algebraic K-theory as a gadget. They input Morava E-theory, and their output is a new invariant that they refer to as the algebraic K-theory of the fixed points of Morava E-theory. They then apply this new invariant to maps from spheres to telescopes and prove that it can see maps that Morava E-theory can't. And it's not just that this new invariant sees a few more maps, it sees many more, even infinitely more. It sees so many more that it's fair to say Morava E-theory was barely scratching the surface when it came to identifying maps from spheres to telescopes. Infinitely more maps from spheres to telescopes means infinitely more maps between spheres themselves. The number of such maps is finite for any difference in dimension, but the new proof shows that the number grows quickly and inexorably. That there are so many maps points to an unsettling geometric reality. That there are so many spheres. In 1956, John Milnor identified the first examples of what are called exotic spheres. These are spaces that can be deformed into the actual sphere from the perspective of homotopy, but are different from the sphere in a certain precise sense. Exotic spheres don't exist at all in dimensions 1, 2, or 3, and no one has discovered examples of them below dimension 7. That's the dimension where Milnor first found them. But as the dimension grows, the number of exotic spheres explodes. There are different types of progress in math and science. One kind brings order to chaos, 
But another intensifies the chaos by dispelling hopeful assumptions that weren't true. The disproof of the telescope conjecture is like that. It deepens the complexity of geometry and raises the odds that many generations of grandchildren will come and go before anyone fully understands maps between spheres. Arlene Santana helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Kevin Hartnett's full article, An Old Conjecture Falls, Making Spheres a Lot More Complicated, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Quantum Magazine is an editorially independent online publication supported by the Simons Foundation to enhance public understanding of science. Music